when I think about universal design, I think about acceptance, it's, well, if we created a space where you were accepted and you were able to access it and you were able to get your needs met, then how many more spoons would that give you? How does that give yeah. back to you so that you can then contribute to the greater society with all of your great gloriousness that is whatever your disabled or neurodivergent identity is? Welcome to the Neurodivergent Visionary Podcast, where we co-create a culture of neurodiversity-affirming, compassionate support for all. Whether you're neurodivergent, neurodivergent curious, a parent, or a service provider, you are welcome here. Now here's your host, Dr. Carrie Birch, the neurodivergent occupational therapist and visionary coach, on a mission to challenge the status quo, disrupt oppressive systems, and transform the world, starting with each person's individual toolbox to work with our brains and not against them. And here she is. I'm so excited for you to share all of your knowledge about spoon theory with us today. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks. Yay. To get started, should we dive right in with sharing with us a little bit about what is spoon theory and why is it relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So spoon theory is a kind of frame of reference and a way of thinking about energy and energy conservation that predominantly comes out of the disability community, chronic illness and chronic fatigue literature. And the term spoon theory and spoons, which we'll get into, was coined in 2003 by Christine, I'm going to get her last name wrong, Miserandino, I think is how it's pronounced. And she happens to be a person who lives with chronic illness. And she, that's what she had in her house. She literally was like, okay, let's grab some spoons. And she used this as a visual representation. And so the idea behind spoon theory is that every person, whether you're able-bodied, disabled, however you consider yourself, we all have a certain amount of energy or capacity. And Christine represented that by spoons. And everybody starts with the same amount of spoons throughout the day. We all spend our spoons on different things. The idea behind this was that people with disabilities, whether they be invisible or visible, have to spend their spoons in different ways. It takes a lot more energy for somebody who needs a full activities of daily living assistance, right, to instruct somebody how to get dressed and what to do, rather than somebody that has no disabilities and might just autopilot get dressed and get ready for their day. They didn't have to spend spoons on that. So when it comes to other things throughout the day, they have a, a greater number of spoons to spend on different things. So it's just a really concise way that has really taken off, particularly, again, within the disability and chronic illness community of referring to how we as disabled people want to spend our time and energy, knowing that we might have additional limitations beyond those of our peers who are not disabled. That totally makes sense. The example you gave of someone who, instead of just autopilot showering and getting ready for the day, for example, I was a personal care assistant in grad school for someone with muscular dystrophy. And I'm thinking back to all the minutia of how he had to tell us exactly what needed to be done to help him get ready. Cause it's not so simple as 
there's all the things like, oh my gosh, I'm really uncomfortable in this position. Can you scoot me one inch this way? Okay, go back, go back, go back, like half an inch that way. And just all the different things. That's If you can just do that yourself, you spent maybe even zero spoons. But like to communicate with someone and all the cognitive and emotional energy that has to go into communicating to someone else what you need is a really big deal. So I just really appreciate that example. It made my brain go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That totally makes sense. And if you could imagine if in that example that you gave and in working with that individual, if you didn't get the positioning perfectly correct and he's uncomfortable, how many spoons does it take to spend your whole day in that position if you don't have the ability to move yourself on your own? And now you're uncomfortable for your whole day until somebody else is able to help you reposition. So that even depletes the spoon level even further. And whereas somebody who doesn't have a disability can go to work and has all these extra spoons to use during the day, it makes sense that someone with a disability may only have a few left after the morning routine or something like that. Right. Yeah. That's so good to know. And I'm thinking about um, how it would be really challenging for people with all sorts of neurodivergences and spoon usage. And I guess I'm getting ahead of myself to, oh, those are like a physical disability that's observable um, examples we gave. But then there's also people who you may not be able to look at them or observably realize that their spoon usage has already been depleted or that what they're doing is costing a lot of spoons. Yeah. I, I, that's a really good point. And in terms of invisible disabilities, the vast majority, something literature tells us like 80 to 85% of people with disabilities, about 80 to 85% of them have invisible disabilities. And so I always think of it, I happen to identify as a person with largely invisible disabilities. And so I always think of it as this blessing and a curse of having passing privilege of having invisible disabilities. And often there's this assumption of oh, you don't use a mobility device. Oh, you don't have a service animal, have something that the public would know is, hey, this person is disabled. So the energy that that comes into play, a lot of our individuals who are neurodivergent, myself included, the energy it takes to go with that assumption of until you need some sort of an accommodation or you need some sort of understanding, people assume that you don't have a disability. And what I'm interested in seeing as we we go throughout. So we know right now that about 15% of the world's population has some type of disability. That's over a billion people. Disabled people are the largest minority mm. on the planet of identity status of any kind, but still a, a minoritized population. What I'm interested to see as we progress in these next decades and as more literature and understanding comes out especially about invisible disabilities, is if that shifts of right now we have this kind of assumption that everybody is able-bodied. Everybody doesn't have any sort of disability until they disclose or until we know something. But in my kind of professional world and, and personal as well, but in the work that I do, I talk a lot about TABs or temporarily able-bodied individuals. We sometimes refer to them as TABs. And as disabled people, we often like to think about and say, If you live long enough, essentially, if you should be so lucky to live to die of natural causes, whatever, 
essentially there's a really good chance you're going to become disabled in, in some form or fashion. Your function is going to change. So I would love to see that switch or start switching rather the assumption be instead of being able-bodied the assumption of hey this person probably has some disabilities we don't necessarily deserve or need to know about that but just how those viewpoints change oh my gosh that's amazing this is probably not the right words but it's like what if we moved as a culture more towards a design that assumes people would benefit from accommodation like automatically almost like a universal design for invisible disabilities not just physical disabilities yeah I was actually in a meeting today at, at my job uh, I work in disability services and in those sorts of things in higher education um, and in my meeting today we were talking essentially about those two things we're trying to get um a captioning policy um, done at my institution. So every video that would be shown for any reason would have captions automatically without somebody having to disclose, hey, I'm deaf or hard of hearing, or hey, I have a learning disability. We just automatically put them on. And same mm -hmm. sort of idea is we want to get microphone usage to be standard. So if you're in a large lecture hall, you're giving a presentation, you automatically use a microphone. And we don't have to wait for somebody to say, hey, I'm deaf or hard of hearing, or I need you to repeat that. It's just baked in. We have a long way to go to get there. They seem like easy and simple things, especially for me. But cultural change is really difficult. So I'm anticipating these things might take years to actually happen. But how does that change a culture to say, all right, this is the assumption. We're just assuming that people in a room need this rather than waiting for somebody to say, oh, yeah, I need accommodations or identify as disabled and I need this. So on that note, I was thinking that specifically for a neurodivergent, if we made an assumption, we know this, but what if workplaces and schools and the culture at large just assumed that everybody's neurodistinct and some people are neurodivergent and that's related to potential invisible disabilities. What would be different about how things are run? And I feel like this, there could be a jillion, billion things on this list. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I think about when I think about, especially neurodivergence, but all types of disabilities is just really like a baseline of acceptance, right. Of saying, because I can't tell you, I'm also doing housing accommodations. I do living accommodations at the university. I work for students with disabilities. And I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had in the past two weeks because we're welcoming students back to campus with students or their family members about these types of neurodivergent behaviors, stereotypy, rocking or flapping of hands or vocal tics or those sorts of things. And either the students or their family members will be like, yeah, they're just a little odd, but it's okay. And so it's this understanding of like, all right, as long as you're not hurting anyone or it depends on the context. Obviously, if you're taking an exam or you're right in the middle of a lecture, bursts or, or things might be a little bit disruptive, but especially in a living situation of, hey, you have somebody that lives with you, but knowing that 
rocking or stimming in whatever way it works for you is really like a self-soothing behavior. So rather than see that as, hey, that's weird. Rachel is rocking back and forth or whatever. Just knowing, oh, she's self-soothing right now. If we had some education to be like, okay, instead of that's odd or strange, we would start to normalize that type of behavior. Yeah. Oh, it goes, it's, it does go to a whole new place of just accepting what people need to do. Yeah. And really, and part of that is like releasing stringent rules we have around like what people are supposed to act like. Yeah. I feel like this is a, a really big topic for all people, like internalized things. What am I, how am I supposed to act? What am I supposed to sound like? And then it gets like, how am I supposed to perform my professional role? What should I be tolerating, even though it's really uncomfortable for me? When you're parenting, like fear of how your children are behaving, it just goes to every area of life. Yeah. And especially in hearing you say that, I it was mostly the family members or the parents or the guardians of the students that I was speaking to where like it it would get really intense right like I had one parent who was talking about their student has autism and they were talking about stimming behaviors mostly rocking some arm flapping and I was struck because the mother was like there he's not violent there's nothing to be concerned of it's just a little different and my heart just sank in that moment because now I do this for a living and I'm constantly around disabled and neurodivergent people, but that was never my assumption. I was like, why would I assume that he would be violent or your student would be violent or that this behavior would be harmful for someone or those kinds of things? And I think for a lot of us as well, even before, so I identified as physically disabled long before I I identified as neurodivergent. And so for me, part of it was even able-bodied people have stimming and self-soothing behaviors. And it's just all in how we frame it of what if we talk to an able-bodied person about their stims and their self-soothing, right? That's not just stimming and self-soothing is not just a behavior that occurs in autism and other neurodivergences. Able-bodied people do it as well, but we don't categorize that behavior in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really makes me think about the idea that all traits And all behaviors are just human behaviors. And it really comes down to like how we're labeling it and what we've societally deemed to be appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My dogs are barking again, (laughs) but I think it's right. Yeah. And that makes me think about even this is a bigger question, but even thinking about what makes a dis what is a disability what makes someone have a disability what is that yeah and I wonder if you could riff on that oh absolutely how much time do you have no I'll do it <laughs> short and sweet some of the uh, key theories that we see in disability so there are tons and tons of theories and frameworks on how we categorize and look at and assist people with disabilities I'll touch on some of the the top ones Historically, where we've come from, uh, medical model is really big. And so I spend a lot of time dispelling myths about medical model and moving people into different formats. So the medical model is this idea that the disability is an inherent 
for lack of a better word, I'll say defect, something that occurs in somebody either in their brain chemistry and their physical body. We have a quote idea of what a quote normal person or a healthy person looks like. And in some way, a disabled person is uh, divergent or different from that. So they may have not as much function as somebody else. They might have extra chromosomes. They might have mental health concerns, those sorts of things. But the idea behind the medical model is that uh, something is inherently wrong with the disabled person's body or brain, and the medical establishment provides medication, therapy, and interventions to, quote, fix them and bring them as close to able-bodied function as possible. So that's the medical model. Historically, in American society, that is where we've come from. There are, along with that, there are a lot of other pieces. The religious model is one of them. So oftentimes in my work, especially with my students with physical disabilities, those that use mobility devices, the people that come up and say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. And hopefully God or whatever deity will take away what they see as an an ailment. And if you're a, a mobility device user and you can't walk, that deity will help you walk, right? Those kinds of things where disabled people are looked down upon to be pitied because they are in this type of situation. The social model of disability is where I live in terms of a happy place and where I've moved the places that I've worked closer towards. And so the social model of disability is really this idea, and it ties in with environment as well, is this idea that people with disabilities just are. They just are at their level of function and they are where they are. And it's really the built environments and the social attitudes as well. I think we think a lot of the built environment because people think of people with physical disabilities because that's where disability legislation and the Americans with Disabilities Act came out of. This idea of there's nothing wrong with somebody that uses a mobility device or has any kind of disability, but it's the environment and the attitudes and the physical space that was created without consideration for the fact that a typical population has disabled people within it, right? So there's nothing wrong with me as a disabled person, but if I'm a mobility device user, it's your responsibility, society, to make sure that you're building accessible buildings and have ramps and have captions and have good color contrast and things like that. So those are really just three of countless disability models and frameworks and how we can think about it. But those are the three most well-known in terms of Either people that do this work or people that don't do this work often have had experiences with that medical model and or perhaps that religious model. So really blending all of those takes, myself as a professional and as an occupational therapist, has really been taking that medical knowledge and what I've learned about kind of etiologies of disabilities and those sorts of things and flipping that script of saying, okay, this is quote, the normal function, the baseline of the individual, they're not going to, we're not going to build a whole lot of strength. We're not going to change the quality of this person's body all that much. What can we do with changing attitudes? What can we do with putting assistive technology and other pieces in place to meet them where they're at? Mm, thank you so much for that awesome explanation of the different theory and like models behind disability creation. I think that's so important. And a huge part of the whole neurodiversity movement is moving from the medical model to the social model then. Of, okay, 
this is minor divergence, like whatever diagnosis I may or may not have is not um, a deficit or something that's wrong with me. It's like my brain works this way. And in the social model and this construct, it's as a society, our goal should be to help every person to be accepted and flourish in their own desired way, not to just try to like match or somehow mirror the quote unquote blueprint of a typical person. Right. Exactly. And I found a lot, especially in academia, I find people often figure out their own way to navigate that for me. And I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not able to diagnose people, but particularly with neurodivergence, I'll say so many of the people that I've worked with throughout my career, professors and others, I'll talk to someone and I'm like, oh, that person is neurodivergent. That person has autism or some other type of neurodivergence. And they're an amazing biology professor. They're an amazing whatever, because that's their special interest, right? It's like, all right, mm-hmm. you have turned this into a career and you have turned this into your superpower. And so clearly people have found a way to be like, all right, if I'm really interested in this one subject, how do I make that my life? There are lots of ways to do that, but it's also this idea of What would happen if we helped people to do that sooner to be like, that's okay. Um, Okay. Like you can do this because I know the number of people that I run into, I was like, some of them probably have formalized diagnoses and the vast majority don't. And that's okay. You don't necessarily need a diagnosis for lots of different things, but also it's how do we get people to become comfortable and find where they fit in society quicker? Because so many of us, whether it be neurodivergence or disability or just other pieces or even other identities not related to disability, right? There's that struggle of, hey, I feel like I'm otherized. I feel like I don't fit here for whatever reason or whatever identity you're thinking about. And when I think about universal design, I think about acceptance. It's, well, if we created a space where you were accepted and you were able to access it and you were able to get your needs met then how many more spoons would that give you? How does that give back to you so that you can then contribute to the greater society with all of your great gloriousness that is whatever your disabled or neurodivergent identity is? Yeah, totally. Because how expensive spoon-wise is it to trying to be do something or doing something you don't like all the time or that really doesn't work to your strengths? How exhausting is that? And How exhausting is it to be doing something you like, but putting all your spoons towards doing it in a way that doesn't really work with your strengths? I feel like that's a big thing I see in the neurodivergent community is people who have energy fluctuations or like who are prone to burnout really fast. Like how, what could it look like if workplaces had a more flexible workflow or different staffing to where people could work less or take more breaks or be free to like power hour if they're like some person who can hyper focus for 10 hours and then take half day off the next day versus just being required to show up consistently that would be so different and that what you said before made me think about like how in a way fortunate and lucky people are who have special interests that are easily what's the right word turn into a career Yeah. And someone who is really interested in statistics or biology or 
something like that versus someone who even someone who is more interested in art or other careers that are much harder to make a good living in. I'm sure there's a lot of things to unpack in what I just said about like cultural things <laughs> about the whole like starving artist story, but that's just an example of what I mean. Of like, Some things are easy to not commodify. That's not the right word. Careerify, something like that. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And the other thing that I've just been curious about since we've been talking is the whole idea of you gave examples of how we just assume people don't have a disability until they ask for some sort of accommodation. But I'm curious, like, how many people must have a disability never know? Yeah. And don't even know what they could ask for or what to ask for. If it's so hard for people to just agree to use microphones or put on captions, like how much harder would it be to change the culture to be inclusive in like a neurodiversity inclusive way? Right. To be like, okay, like yeah. when I give presentations and I do a lot of public speaking and, and presenting in the work that I do, I like to start all of my presentations with a roadmap, right? Hey, I'm going to be talking about disability and disability in higher education. It's going to be about an hour. I'll take questions at the end. And I usually have some sort of signpost of, hey, if you need to get up and walk around, pace in the back, get a drink of water, do whatever you need to do, feel free to do that as long as it's not disrupting other people. So if you're one of those people that I've presented in rooms for individuals with Tourette syndrome, and maybe they have a lot of vocal tics, and maybe they need to step out for a moment. Other times not, right? We just know that they're going to have a small vocal tick and that's okay. And it's not calling attention to that. But those are small things that we can do rather than the world that you and I grew up in educationally where it's, no, you sit in the classroom from 8 a.m. to 3 o'clock and you sit there and you don't move. And if you're fidgeting around, you're doing it wrong, right? The numbers of people that I see and we give out fidgets at my office, right? We have small noiseless Love fidgets it. to give out, but people knitting or people moving around. It's, again, shifting this idea that people, especially children, but not just children, adults too, are not built to, to sit and be stagnant for hours and hours on end. And so that's one of the things that I think about, especially for neurodivergent people, especially for people that have invisible disabilities is knowing that of, yeah, you're going to have people getting up and moving around during a presentation or doing different things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are disrespectful or disinterested in what you're talking about or what's going on. They are just getting their sensory needs met. Yeah. Oh, totally. I love those examples. Oh, yeah. I feel extremely woeful these days as I imagine my little toddler going to school someday and being like, I don't really like what I, the mental picture I have of our educational system from the limited number of schools I've actually worked in as an occupational therapist. It's just really, I know that I have a lot more research to do, but it does, it is a heartbreak or a pain to be like, oh man. The way all these things are built is not helpful. Like it's really only feasible for theoretically some small percentage of people and like most, and then I'm imagining like partitioning off my brain of like a pie chart of, okay, this amount of people is actually quote unquote 
neurotypical. I don't even know exactly what that means. And then these are all these people who are neurodivergent or who have other disabilities. And everything is built for that like small pie chart of a person. Oh, I just don't like that. I want to change the world about that. Yeah. It needs to be different. Yeah. And when I think about it in my work, I do that often because people will think about like accommodations as such an inconvenience, right? Mm -hmm. All day long, I'm advocating for college students with disabilities and like, the number of times that I've been like, hey, you have a student that needs captions or whatever. And we have resources for that. We have vendors that we work with. We teach people how to caption things. But the number of times that I talk to people and they say, oh, that's going to take forever, but I've already done it this way. That's going to be so difficult. Or people will say, oh, that's going to be so expensive if we have to X, Y, or Z for this person. And all things considered, people that require accommodations, the average cost of an accommodation, whether it be academically or in the workforce, is $500. In the grand scheme of things, I know $500 seems, depending on your lens, could be a lot of money, but it's really not. When you're thinking about corporations or you're thinking about an educational institution, the average cost of an accommodation being $500 is not that big of a deal. And also this idea of like, when you think of curricula, when you think of how you're planning things, thinking of the abilities of everybody, because I have a student right now that has essentially very limited use of her hand. She has, she can drive a wheelchair and, and that's about it. She can't hold a pen. She can't manipulate things fine motor wise. But the number of times that like team building exercises that I've noticed are like, oh, we're going to build this thing together or we're going to do this. And just Mm -hmm. talking to faculty and watching their faces change when you're like, okay, but you have a student in your class who can't functionally use their hands. And everybody's first response is, I guess they'll just sit and watch, right? When really the response Mm -hmm. should be, what is an activity that you could include everybody in that doesn't require you to thread a needle and have tons of super fine motor skills? Because yes, Mm -hmm. you have a very visible student who has no use of their hands, whatever. But as we were talking about before with neurodivergence and other things, disability is a huge spectrum where there might be somebody who doesn't use a mobility device who has an invisible disability like myself that also struggles with those things. And it's not necessarily the markers of, oh, I see a mobility device or I see a service animal or whatever that should be the marker of, oh, I have to change how I think. Mm. That instead of the automatic being, they'll just have to deal with what I what the system already is. What if we change how we think, right, and design things better in the first place? Yeah, yeah, that feels very potent. Yeah, and I'm really important. Yeah, is there any other things that you would love to tell the listeners about these topics? Yeah, I think as Carrie, I love spoon theory and I talk about spoons and being a spoonie often. And what I like about spoon theory and spoons, and I'm not saying all of your listeners need to immediately adopt spoon theory and use it in their speech, but for myself and my friend group and the people that I interact with regularly, many of whom are neurodiverse and disabled in a variety of ways, I like the language of spoon theory because 
it allows you to explain what you have capacity for. And at least within my circles, I know instantly if a friend was to say, I really want to do that, but I don't have the spoons for it, right? That instantly tells me, okay, they don't have the capacity. But using that language for me is, oh, it's not because they hate me. It's not because they don't want to do it. It's not because X, Y, and Z. I don't take it personally. I know I'm automatically to not take it personally when somebody uses the language of spoons because it's not, oh, I don't want to go to your party because I think it's uncool. It's, I don't have the capacity right here. It immediately mm-hmm. gives me a visual. So I think that's really strong. Whether you identify as disabled or neurodivergent or not, you might be an able-bodied person with no neurodivergence and spoons are still something that you could use in that capacity rather than trying to, I think for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about where I want to spend my time. And then also if I can't make it or if I make a decision and I have to change that as somebody who has anxiety and things like that. I spend a lot of energy. I spend a lot of spoons being like, okay, but I have to think of a good reason of why this, what if I hurt Carrie's feelings? If I give a wrong reason versus spoons is my out where I can just say, nope, Carrie knows that I don't have the capacity there. And it may be, it might be that I'm having a bad mental health day. It might be that I am having a a bad pain day. It might be something entirely different, but automatically it's not about that person knows that it's not about whatever the invitation was. It's something capacity-wise in the individual. I love that. I love that. It creates the common language and you automatically understand each other so much better. And it makes you really take some agency over being even willing to conceptualize your own capacity and knowing that you can make decisions that protect your capacity or save your energy for things. Versus just, I can or I can't, especially for people socialized as women. Oh, if I can, then I really should. And it's like, oh, just because you can doesn't mean that it's what's best for you. And because you have to think about how many spoons do you have and what are you going to use them on? And it just helps you make really empowered decisions for yourself. Yeah. And even like knowing, yeah, if you have other things coming up in your life or or people that are parents and those sorts of things of being like, okay, I don't get to just spend my spoons on myself. Like I have to keep some spoons back for the people I care give for, whether that be children or others. So I really just like that. I'm a big language person and I like that language. And I try to bring spoon theory where I can my first year um, at one of my jobs, that was our giveaways for one of our tabling days was we gave away little wooden spoons with a tag on spoon theory and some candy and some other things to make it exciting for college students. But I really, I got really excited when students were really into spoon theory and using the language. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I love that. I love that. I realized for my own spoon usage, I really can't have more than four hours of meetings with people each day. Because otherwise, I don't have any spoons left to parent at night. And I learned that the hard way over and over. <laughs> and when yeah. I make exceptions, I always regret it because I don't have enough capacity. Yeah. So it's just so helpful to be like, oh, yeah, my spoons are all gone. Clearly, I'm like frustrated and don't have patience and can't wait for bedtime to be over because I used up all my spoons already. Sure. It's just so helpful. It's so helpful to have those language instead of being like, wow, I need to work on being more patient. Maybe I don't. Maybe I just need to like lower my expectations for what I'm asking myself to do all the time. Yeah. 
Rachel, this has been amazing. This was super fun. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Yeah. Can I ask you a few rapid fire questions? Yes, please. In your brain, if the word and concept for neurodivergence had a color, what would it be? Ooh, like a dark green. Ooh, I like it. What is a need that you claim or treat for yourself as sacred, a sacred need? Being in nature, like making sure that I get outside of my house. And what piece of advice do you most want to give listeners? I would say for your listeners is to try to center yourself in the sense of often I think society tells us that putting ourselves first and putting our needs first is selfish, right? I struggle with this all the time, but also We hear it often, right? You can't pour from an empty cup. You can't take care of people if you have no spoons. And so it's really, it goes back to that old cliche of you have to put your oxygen on oxygen mask on first before you can help other people. And especially with spoon theory, right? Of if I don't, if I already, if I wake up and my spoons are depleted, I'm going to have less to give to other people. So really trying to recognize that it's okay to be selfish sometimes. And I struggle with this. I struggle with this a lot, but I'm grateful that I have other people in my life, you being one of them, that can remind me that it's okay to be selfish sometimes. Oh, heck yeah. I love that advice. Thank you so much, Rachel. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Neurodivergent Visionary Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please follow, rate, and review to help others who would benefit from the show to find us and join our community. Make sure you connect with Carrie on social media. Links are in the show notes. And inside there, you will also find a link to your free ebook, Your Neurodivergent GPS System, which has three magical rituals to figure out your next steps in any situation. These are exercises Carrie uses personally and teaches to all of her one-on-one clients. Most of all, on behalf of Carrie, thank you again for being here. You matter and we are grateful for you.